does a person preach on two days after Christmas? If you lined up ten Christians, you'd get eleven answers. Because the, the, the struggle is, is it still the Christmas season? The liturgical calendar would say yes. But does it still feel like Christmas? To some, and not so much to others. And so, to that end, this morning we're going to have a sort of Christmas message. Christmas light, if you will. We're going to focus on a, a passage that comes immediately following the nativity, the, the uh, Christmas story we're all so familiar with, that follows directly after that, much in the same way we're in the space between Christmas and New Year's currently. A little while ago, I read about this fictional Christmas correspondence between Martha Stewart and Irma Bombeck, and it reminded me that Christmas is not always picture perfect. It starts with a letter from Martha to Irma. She says, hi, Irma. This perfectly delightful note is being sent on paper I made myself to tell you what I've been up to. It snowed last night, so I got up early and made a sled out of old barn wood and glue. I hand-painted it in gold leaf, got out my loom, and made a blanket in peaches and mauves. Now it's time to start making the placemats and napkins for my 20 breakfast guests. I'm serving the old standard Stuart 12-course breakfast. Uh, but I didn't have time to make the tables and chairs this morning, so I used the ones I already had. I did take time to make the dishes to use from Hungarian clay, which you can get from almost any Hungarian craft store. Well, I must run. I need to finish the buttonholes on the dress I'm wearing for breakfast. I'll get out the sled and drive this note to the post office as soon as the glue dries on the envelope I'll be making. Love, Martha. Nirma's response. Dear Martha, I'm writing this on the back of an old shopping list. Pay no attention to the coffee and jelly stains. I'm 20 minutes late getting my daughter up for school, packing a lunch with one hand, on the phone with the dog pound with the other. It seems old rough has gotten out, gotten, uh, needs bailing out again. I burnt my arm on the curling iron while I was trying to make those cute, cute curly fries you, whose recipe you sent me. Still can't find the scissors to cut out some snowflakes. I tried using an old disposable razor, and I trashed my tablecloth. Tried that cranberry thing, frozen cranberries must, mushed up after I defrosted them in the microwave. Oh, and don't use fruity pebbles as a substitute for Rice Krispies unless you happen to like a disgusting shade of green. The smoke alarm is going off. Talk to you later. Love, Irma. I don't know a single person who actually prefers the Martha Stewart version of Christmas. We see it in pictures. We all know of it. But I don't actually know anybody who enjoys celebrating Christmas like that. Christmas is far from perfect. Kids get sick. People lose their jobs. Sometimes people even pass away. Trouble doesn't take a holiday just because it's Christmas. And that shouldn't surprise us because even the first Christmas wasn't picture perfect. In the midst of all the miracles and joy that are part of that story, there's a lot of hassle, a lot of hurting. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23 is where we'll be focused this morning. Matthew 2, 13 says this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared, appeared to Joseph in a dream. Up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time, time he had learned from the Magi. That was when, that, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared. Did I just read that? I'm sorry, guys. No, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those you are trying to, who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called the Nazarene. I'm sorry, my sheets are out of order. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I have them all marked with numbers, and somehow my sh they are completely out of order here, so I apologize for the confusion during that. I don't know about most of you, but for me, Christmas is often simultaneously the greatest and worst time of year. We're going to be talking again about paradoxes this morning. Don't get me wrong, I, I absolutely love Christmas. In fact, I would go as far as to say it's my favorite time of year. But life gets in the way. Nothing ever seems to go according to plan. And if you've ever been involved in church ministry, then you know that it is an incredibly uh, busy time of year for church staff. Um, there, there was a meme I saw recently that was posted in a pastor's support group, which was just a picture of a whole bunch of chaos and someone sitting in the middle of it all burnt to crisp saying, I survived Christmas. That's how pastors often feel at Christmas time. And it can be true. On the other hand, I love Christmas and everything it represents. I love family and spending time together. I love Christmas decorations, and I love Christmas music. We spend so much time anticipating Christmas, then the season of Christmas seems to get longer every year. It seems that we start the countdown to Christmas now in October. And so in my house, we have a rule, or I should say I have a rule that my wife very begrudgingly honors me with, and that is that Christmas decorations and music and that sort of thing can't be brought out until the first Sunday of Advent. Nothing before that. Nothing before that last week in November. Not because of any fancy rule, not because I'm trying to do anything special, but simply because if it goes on too long, I find it cheapens the season. So, four weeks of Christmas. That's what we get each year in my house. And by limiting the number of jolly days, I find that you make those four weeks so much more impactful. Anticipation and preparation are good, but it can be a fine line. Too much and too long, and we begin to get false expectations, and we begin to be let down by the actual event. And this is particularly true of Christmas. There are thousands of examples of things that disappoint despite the hype. For many art lovers, there is no greater piece in the world than the Mona Lisa, and I've got a picture of it here. The Mona Lisa, magnificent. 
perhaps the most famous painting in the world. But here is what the Mona Lisa actually looks like if you go to see it in person. It is tiny. The most common thing people say about the Mona Lisa is they're surprised how small it is. We picture it as this great big fresco, and it's not. And the average wait time to get to see it, not to get into the museum, by the way, just to see the Mona Lisa, is three hours. There's a guard who's been working at the Louvre where it's held. He's been working there for years, and he says, I don't know why people keep coming. It's a nice painting, but there are many more interesting pictures elsewhere in the museum that people don't look at. They walk right by them. They come in, they wait, they take a picture with the Mona Lisa, and they leave. Everyone is ushered in and out in 30 seconds. So you get less than 30 seconds with this picture. Meanwhile, you miss all these great artwork, all this great artwork that goes on around in the rest of the building. And I feel like Christmas is sometimes a similar thing. We prepare for months buying presents, decorating, hours of prepping grocery, uh, buying groceries and prepping a turkey, and then the day is here and it's our moment. And then we unwrap a present and it sucks. We watch people open our presents and they don't seem to be very excited about them. We carve the turkey and it's dry. We realize that wrapping paper doesn't clean itself up. And I'm not suggesting that Christmas is always a letdown, but often it can be. And people are afraid to talk about it because they feel like they're supposed to be merry at Christmas. So we put on this act. And if that is how you feel this year, then I want you to know that you're in great company. Company that I would actually propose goes back to the very first Christmas. The first hassle in the story of Christmas is the fact that Mary got pregnant in the first place. Joseph and Mary were betrothed, but not officially married. And Joseph, of course, was ready to call the whole thing off until an angel comes and explains the whole situation to him. You've got to wonder how Mary felt about that. Joseph was ready to leave, and it wasn't until an angel appears to him and says, don't do it, that he stays. It would have made for some difficult conversation. I think Joseph probably felt a little hamstrung by it too. I think he probably would have preferred the angel show up to some family members and people and explain the situation, because he knows what's going on now, but nobody else does. How would you feel if an angel appeared to you and said, you know what, you knew, uh, Alicia and Jordan, you guys are going to have this baby. I know you, you, you don't, you know, you're not quite married yet, but all of a sudden you're going to have this baby. I'm not going to tell anybody else what's going on. You've just got to go around and tell everybody else that the child you're pregnant with happened supernaturally thanks to God, and oh, by the way, it's the Son of God. Go, go tell everybody. and just hope they understand. I think maybe Mary and Joseph would have preferred the angels show up and explain this to a few more people. But we tend to skip over that part. Imagine the hassle of having endured as an un unwed mother, having to endure a wedding, and the whispers and the guessing. And then that's just the beginning of the story. Not long after the wedding, the emperor made every Israelite go back to their hometown and not only take a census, what we forget is that the census was because of a new tax. You've got to go back and make this journey you weren't anticipating, pay this new tax, this bill you weren't anticipating as a newly married couple. Now Joseph's bride is ready to give birth. He's got this extra expense, and they need to pack up and move and do this whole big song and dance. Hassles, 
extra expenses. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? So Joseph scrounges up the money and they head out for Bethlehem. And then they meet another hassle. There's nowhere for them to stay. His wife's about to give birth and Joseph settles for the only accommodations that are available, a stable. And in that dirty stable, surrounded by animals, without a doctor, without a nurse, without an epidural, Mary gives birth. And everything is okay for a moment. And that's when we arrive at our scripture from this morning. Because it's not okay for long. Very shortly after giving birth, an angel appears again and brings this message and tells Joseph, take Mary and the baby and get out of here because someone is coming to kill your new child. And so how would you respond? Long before this, I would have been like, Lord, enough is enough. We have endured enough. Why don't you just zap Herod with an aneurysm and get this whole thing over with? But Joseph packs up his family and strikes out for Egypt. He gets a job and probably sets up housekeeping for a while. And over and over, Joseph and Mary endure hassle after hassle for the sake of this one baby. Later on, we see that John the Baptist is actually disappointed in Jesus. He expected the Messiah to come by storm, but nothing much seemed to be happening. It wasn't Jesus who was at fault, but it was John the Baptist's expectations. And the first reason is that he was gripped by disappointment is those expectations he built up were of his own making. The whole gospel, this whole thing is kind of one big joke. It doesn't make much sense. It's the opposite of logic. The only reason that we are here even this morning, the only reason that we wait during Advent is because we're in on the joke. We've talked about this before, but we know how this ends. That's it. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians that is quite long, but I think is worth going through this morning that explains this much better than I can. So again, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31 lays out my argument here for me much better than I can. It says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness, for those who are perishing. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of where you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, not that one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has come for, for us, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, Paul comes right out and says, much more eloquently than I certainly could, what I mentioned a minute ago. This whole gospel thing is kind of one big joke. It's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. The fact that we are in on the joke is bittersweet. We wait so longingly, we celebrate so earnestly, all because we know how this movie ends. It ends with an empty tomb and redemption of all humankind. If it didn't, we wouldn't have reason to celebrate at Christmas. And so that's really great, but the problem is, it's the ultimate story spoiler. As many of you know, I'm a huge nerd fan of the playwright Aaron Sorkin, and particularly of his television show, The West Wing. When you're as big of a fan as something as I am of a show or a movie, there's a longing to go back and experience it for the first time. Because you can never relive that moment. You can never relive experiencing, especially something entertainment-wise, for the first time. You can try and recall when you see it again. You can try and force other people to sit and watch with you and hope they react the way you did. But you can't relive it. And so this is the ultimate bittersweet thing that we as Christians have. We know how this movie ends. We can't experience it for the first time, and yet every Advent, somehow, we do. A few months ago, I preached a sermon on differing expectations, on how if what someone wants to give us is different from what we were expecting, then we're doomed to disappointment. And I feel like many experiences within Christendom are the same. Sometimes we're disappointed, not because what we have received is bad, but because we built up something different in our mind. There are people in this room and watching right now online who feel like life has somehow cheated them. But I guarantee you that if any of us lost everything and regained it, we wouldn't feel cheated anymore. The problem is not what we have, but rather our expectations. And I want to be very clear, I am not telling you to lower your expectations. We wait on the Lord, we expect the Lord. Our expectations should be high. Ambition is good, overreaching is good. It just needs to be set to the plumb line of the kingdom of God and not of our own making. The Christmas story has become so familiar to most of us. Most of us know it verbatim. Even people who are admittedly anti-Christian know the story. It's a great story that I believe in, and it never in and of itself disappoints. But it seems to me that it disappoints when we expect things of it that are not there. But here's the rub. God never intended for the Christmas story to simply be a comforting, cute story. We've reduced it to that. If you're looking for reassurance in the nativity story, you may well find it there. Plenty of it is there. Prophecies are fulfilled. The fact that Joseph dutifully obeys. The fact that they find room even such as it was in a stable. The fact that Herod's fan, 
plan ultimately fails miserably and Jesus survives. This story is full of reassurance. But if that's all you go looking for in the first few chapters of the Gospels, then you're doomed to disappointment. God intended for this story to serve as much, much more. He intended for it to be a call to action. I would argue that this is the most divergent and earth-shattering call to action that humankind has ever received because it changes everything. We're now expected to be different people. We, weren't, we aren't yet redeemed simply because, Christ, because of Christ's birth, but the rules have been changed because we know the end. If you're looking to the Nativity story for comfort and reassurance this Christmas, I fervently pray that you've found it. But that's just the beginning. If, you leave, if, you, if that's where you leave the story, then you're certainly missing the rest of it. You're missing the fact that the curtain is now broken. Now we are invited into the Holy of Holies thanks to the events that took place in that first Christmas. But there's something else we need to be reminded of this morning. And that is when you're disappointed in something, whether it be Christmas or the Mona Lisa, we need to look for the beauty. It's always there. I think this is a much more timely message for Christmas, or for 2020. I'll ask your forgiveness as I talk about my dad here, because I feel like I have to. Because my father, some of you have met him, not many of you have, but those who know my father know that my dad can find the positive in anything. He's just that kind of guy. He, he seems to look for the good that's going on or find the teaching moment the beauty in any situation. It's no surprise to anyone who knows my dad that his two favorite songs are Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World and the hymn It Is Well With My Soul. Those are the ones that describe my father. And every time those, I hear those songs, I can't help but think of my father. And then no matter how bad my day is going, I can't help but smile because dad is right. There is always something redeeming about any situation. One of my personal heroes is Mr. Rogers. Many people don't know this, but Fred Rogers was actually a devout Christian. He even went to seminary and was an ordained Presbyterian minister. One of Mr. Rogers' most famous quotes was this. He used to say, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. There is always good. No matter what darkness we find ourselves in, there is always good. This year has been difficult for all of us, and as a church, we've had to pivot and make all sorts of changes. And there's been a lot of difficulty, but there is good that has come out of it. As many of you know, about a month or a month and a half ago, I wrote an op-ed for the World Spectator. I did so very... Uh, very sure that it was the right thing for me to do, but very tentatively. I wasn't, uh, th this isn't something that comes naturally to me. And I was very concerned about how this would work out, about what kind of heat it would generate. Producing something like that and talking about all the negative that's, the negative that's going on right now has generated enormous good. We have been getting phone calls here at the church from people who don't go here, don't even go to church, just wanting to, dis to talk, just wanting to discuss things. 
people have found it and then Googled us and found our website and found our live streams. And since we've gone to live streams, which we've had to do because of something that is less than ideal, our YouTube numbers have skyrocketed. And we're getting people playing sermons from all over the world and listening to our worship services from all over the world who otherwise would never have any contact with a small church in a small town in Saskatchewan. I'm not saying COVID has been good for our church, but there is always good to find. The Mona Lisa disappoints in person, but to a trained eye, the Mona Lisa is one of the most revolutionary and beautiful pieces of artwork in human history. Christmas is celebrated as a time of beauty and joy, but for some, it's difficult and painful. But it can be both. Something can be beautiful and wonderful and disappointing at the same time. Beauty in the midst of crushing disappointment. Once again, we find truth in impossible paradoxes. So if you're feeling discouraged this morning, may you find comfort and refuge in the story of a helpless babe who is all at once fully God and fully human. If you are disillusioned, may you learn to stop expecting of the Lord and instead be expecting. And if you're hurting, may you look for beauty in every situation. Because even in the darkest hours, God's plan is always marching forward. The kingdom of God is advancing. It's moving forward to a time when having already redeemed us, our Savior returns to take us home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for what you are doing in and around our lives. Not because we feel good about it, but because your word commands us to give thanks in all circumstances. We truly want your will for our lives. But we also need your grace and your wisdom to not only recognize it, but to accept it and be grateful for it as well. We know you are in control of all things. We know you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. We rest in the assurance that you are still loving and you are still protecting us in the midst of of times that even, even still feel disappointing. Thank you for the gift of Christmas and the call to action you have left us through this miracle. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.